The ability to analyze the genetic code quickly and cheaply has triggered excitement about the future of precision medicine, tailored therapies, and individualized healthcare. We talk about our genetic code being our blueprint, and therefore people have an expectation that they will simply be able to, from their own genetic code, read what's going to happen to them. Now, that's not the case, or at least not yet, according to clinician scientist Dr. Annika Lucasen, who makes clear we're more complicated than our genetic information. Our genetic code is three billion letters long, so you and I might vary at about four to five million points in that code, and then we might have each about 100,000 variants that are actually quite rare or um, not seen in many people. But it's distilling those down into something meaningful for the particular patient who's asking clinical questions. In this episode of Innovations Uncovered, Dr. Lucasen not only discusses the barriers in interpreting all of this information, she also highlights the cost to indiscriminate data collection and her real passion and specialty in this evolving field. Those real life ethical issues, how they raise their heads is, is by far the most interesting thing. Sit back and relax and hopefully learn a little something about the current state and future of precision medicine. Here's my full conversation with Dr. Annika Lucasen, Director of the Centre for Personalised Medicine at the University of Oxford, right here in the UK. First of all, thanks ever so much indeed for taking the time to, to talk to us this afternoon. We really, really appreciate you doing that. It's a real pleasure. Let's kick off. What, what does personalised medicine actually mean to you? I think it's a really good question because it's a term used in, in lots of different um, settings. And I suppose I'd start by saying that as a clinician, medicine has always been personalised to some extent. So I started practising in the mid-80s and my aim would have been to personalise medicine to the patient in front of me. And I think the ancient Greeks would probably also say that. So in, in some ways, there's nothing new about trying to use the tools that you have available to target to the patient in front of you as much as possible. But I think the term recently really has been coined around this explosion in technology advances. So in particular, uh, our ability to analyse a genetic code quickly and cheaply, meaning that we gather much, much more data about people that gives us a potential to say, well, in this particular uh, way, this person is different to that person and therefore they might benefit more from this treatment or from this, or they might have this particular diagnosis rather than that particular diagnosis. So I suppose there's two ways that that term has been used. One has been to sort of refine broad types of diagnosis. So a hundred years ago, we might have thought of anemia as one type of diagnosis, and now we know there's lots of different types of anemia, so iron deficiency anemia, for example, and and that this new sort of wave of personalised medicine is drilling down even more to that. So it's saying, what type of type one diabetes have you got? And the other way is in thinking about whether particular genetic makeups would make you more or less sensitive to drugs and therefore able to benefit from certain treat treatments more than others. So I think it's both in the sort of refinement of diagnosis and the refinement of treatments or 
or to know what to avoid in, in treatments, that the term has been uh, recently used. So, so my own opinion is it's not really anything new, but I think there is an added responsibility that, that we might need to think about in personalised medicine today is that we shouldn't just be collecting that data just because we can quickly and cheaply. We have a responsibility to uh, think about what we're collecting when and then analysing it for the benefit of the patient in front of us. And that might that might be different for one person at different stages of their life. So personalised medicine for a newborn baby might be very different than personalised medicine for them as they're an adult. One of the things, because you've worked sort of across the piece, haven't you? You know, you've worked as a clinician. You, you, you've also worked, you know, with the with the with the data and the the technology. And, and I wonder, you know, one of the points that you said there's obviously been an explosion in the ability to, you know, sequence genomes and and uh, and I wonder how easy is it to get the data into somewhere where you can actually use it clinically? How you you say mind the gap. So how easy is it to uh, to actually do something for the benefit of the patient with the data? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I suppose I might answer that slightly differently and say that because the advances around um, sequencing and data gathering, not just of genetic information, but all sorts of health information, because that has got so much quicker and easier and cheaper there's a temptation to think that that must inevitably lead to better care, that because we can get it, things will leap out of that to improve patient care. And I think simply the bottleneck has shifted. So there was a bottleneck at the technology side. So in the past, I might have said to patients, well, it would be really, you know, if we could, we would test you for this, but we just haven't got the, the money or the technology available. That barrier has gone. But the barrier is now interpreting it in a way that makes sense. And I think the real difficulty in that interpretation lies in the fact that the discussions that we have as a society, particularly about genetics, are sometimes a bit oversimplistic. So we, if we reduce those developments down to headlines, then we get, well, this is straightforward. Our genetic code will tell us what's going to happen to us. We talk about our genetic code being our blueprint and therefore people have an expectation that they will simply be able to, you know, from their own genetic code, read what's going to happen to them. And that is just so much more complex than than we might have thought or that you might think from those headlines. So if you think about it, our genetic code is three billion letters long and we have in so you and I and everybody else on, who's been on this call might vary at about four to five million points in that code. And then we might have each about a hundred thousand variants that are actually quite rare or um, not seen in many people. But it's distilling those down into something meaningful for the particular patient who's asking clinical questions. That's much, much harder than um, than people think because I think that societal discussion does lead people coming to clinics like mine saying, have I got the gene for something? Yes or no. When actually everyone's got the gene for something, it's whether there is any variation in that gene, what that variation means, whether it affects the function of the gene, whether that gene then interacts with other genes. So you can begin to see how much more complicated it is. And it's not just complicated on a 
genetic level, it's also how that variation interacts with environmental factors or transgenerational sort of epigenetic factors. But also, as we've seen very much from the recent pandemic, that, that there can be a real confusion between whether social, socioeconomic factors and genetic factors, where they overlap, what, what's what, what's causing the, the effect. So is there also a danger, I mean, it's probably, I don't know, sounds a bit silly, but is there also a danger of having too much data? You know, so instead of necessarily looking for, you know, uh, something which is related to a condition, looking for that entire sequence and then trying to haystack, if you like, rather than a needle. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I, again, I think that's another one. There's a common misunderstanding that what we used to do in the past is look for a diagnosis starting off with a particular question. It's sort of, I've got a particular rare disease. What's its genetic origin? And then you can home in on particular bits of the genetic code to say, is there something here that would explain that? So using your haystack analogy, we're, we're, we're knowing which bit of the haystack to look at for a needle. If you turn that round and start with a healthy person, say, for example, a, a newborn baby, there's been a lot of discussion about that recently, should we be sequencing uh, the entire code of newborn babies? But you start with a healthy newborn baby and you analyse their entire genetic code, then you come up with these 100,000 um, variants I talked about earlier that really you don't know what they will mean for that baby in the future. And so essentially there you're looking at the whole haystack and you're not even looking for a needle in a haystack. You're, you, you can't distinguish between needles and hay and everything gets much more complicated. Or, or the other analogy I think that makes sense to some people is thinking about the difference. If you want, you want a nice um, particular fish for your tea, you go fishing for that particular fish and you only catch them. Whereas if you trawl the ocean bed, it's much more, it's quicker and it's cheaper, but you get all sorts of other things in your net um, that might not be edible or that might be quite dangerous or that might be quite inefficient, you know, so collecting it for the sake of it, you're throwing it away again. And so I think your question leads on to another really important point that we're starting to think about, but I think not yet enough. That there is a, a cost to indiscriminate data collection. It, it's not just all oh, the more we gather, the better. And the two, the two costs that I think are beginning to be thought about, but where a lot more work needs to be done, is that 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 sort of collection of genetic information and and sort of other data often is biased in a population. It goes to people who've got time and money to engage with that sort of request. So you are selecting for a particular socioeconomic group and you are, as a result, probably also concentrating your efforts in countries that can afford to do that. And therefore, your databases become biased towards people of Northern European recent ancestry. And, so, and we know that. We know that of all the genomes collected worldwide, uh, the vast majority are from a particular ancestry. So that means we can immediately say far less about people from different um, ancestral groups. And that has real repercussions for clinical diagnoses, that they're much less likely to be robust and based on looking at variation in, in that population, and you might get false diagnoses that way. 
So I think the whole sort of diversity um, issue needs focusing or needs much more attention in this sort of let's grab every all the data we can. And the other thing I think that we need to think about more is um, sustainability in that we tend to think of um, uh, this sort of exercise of talking via a screen and a computer as being carbon neutral, but of course it isn't. And collecting data and collecting and storing um, people's genomes is huge in the terms of in terms of um, storage, and that also then involves uh, using all sorts of depletable minerals and elements in the creation of the computers that drive that. So um, there is a carbon footprint to tech, which is already, I understand, I'm not no expert in this, but it's already equivalent to airline traffic and set to go up significantly. So I think we should really be thinking about that and how we might use that responsibly rather than, as you say, just collecting it and seeing what we'll do with it later. One of the things I'd like to talk about uh, a little bit is engagement. And I'd quite like to talk about engagement from sort of two or three perspectives, really, because uh, based on your based on your experience, what would you say is a, a positive way of uh, engaging with uh, with uh, patients? How, you know, what, how do they get the most out of this engagement? Mm, yeah, I suppose the answer to that question depends a little bit on on what sort of engagement you want or what your what your question is. But um, and I might tackle your, your question from a slightly different angle, in that I um, have found that that engagement exercises can be a bit of a sort of tick box exercise. You need it. You need to prove to your research funder that you're doing engagement. Tick. Let's go out and do a, um, a public engagement session. And I think that also what has happened in genetics and genomics is that people have uh, have sort of got distracted about engagement and thought that means educating public's patients about what genetics is and the complexities around the technology and I think that then often becomes a sort of education session that is not particularly what patients or publics want or that they glaze over rather early on in that and the engagement might be lost. I think that Thinking about the patients that I've seen in clinic, but also some of the exercises I've done, say, with school children, I'm always surprised by how savvy they are about genetics in everyday life, really. And I, I'm also very influenced by research that we've done in the past that, that shows there's a big difference between what health professionals think their patients would want and what help, what patients say they expect their health professionals to be doing. And that's worrying to me. That shows that we've got a lot further to go in engagement exercises, that, that if there is that sort of discrepancy. So an example that comes to mind from our research is that there's, in genetics, there's sometimes a worry about how the results in one person should or if they should be communicated to that person's relatives, because a gene in one person might mean um, that their siblings or their children or other family members have also inherited that, and they might be unaware of that. And so health professionals tend to say, oh, well, we can't do that without consent from the patient, and that's not our job. We can't bother ourselves with that. So that's up to the patient to communicate it to their family members. Whereas 
patients quite often say, well, actually, I would want you to keep my clinical details confidential. So the fact that I've got some condition, that's my private information. But my inheritance is not the same thing. My inheritance is something that belongs to the whole family. And I would expect you to either help me communicate that or uh, for you to do that communication in a sort of centralised way. And those views are really quite discrepant and suggest to me that we could do a lot better in, in engagement exercises sometimes. Talk a little bit about the less positive side of uh, engagement, if you will, because because there's a lot of uh, a lot of tests available, aren't there? Some you know you can get through the through the NHS, some that you can you know order online and uh, and and uh, off you go. But but sometimes the results of those can be quite confusing and uh, almost disturbing for people. And how do you deal with that? Yeah, well, I suppose that's a a lack of effective engagement. So I. I mean, the examples I would have there are of the burgeoning direct-to-consumer industry, where because the conversation about genetics and genomics is often quite simplified and the technology is cheap, people sometimes, not surprisingly, think, oh, well, I'll do a test just to see whether or not I'm at risk of something. And if they engage with the health service, they might get to hear that actually the test is not straightforward or it doesn't mean quite what they thought it would or they need to do something else before it's an interpretable test. But if they buy it directly um, from a company, that a commercial company that's really out to make money rather than anything else, they might be quite misinformed about what those results mean for them. And, and the good example there is that the technique that's used in many of the direct-to-consumer tests is very good at feeding back how their ancestors migrated across the globe. So it might give you a, you know, it's been called ethnicity testing, which I think is a strange term because it's it's not really about ethnicity, but it's sort of, it's ancestry testing. And, and, And the techniques there are really quite good at saying what the likelihoods are of, of that recent migration of your ancestors. But they're really, really bad at picking up rare variation in a genetic code. And the results that are most likely to have implications on your health are the rare variants rather than the common ones. And so what's happened unbeknownst to to many people for, for quite some time is that you might have a test for, say, for a breast cancer gene and think that you're having comprehensive testing, but actually the company's only looking for a particular uh, variant and your negative result is not nearly as reassuring as you might have thought it was. And then worse than that, there's been a a sort of recent development where once you've had your uh, direct-to-consumer test, there are now companies that come in and say, oh, well, if you want us to, we can analyse that data for you. We've got your, once we've got that output from the test, we can analyse your data for you again to look for other things that this initial test didn't look for. And we've now had quite a few examples of that secondary analysis coming up with something that looks really quite alarming. And on the basis of that, people have wanted to make clinical decisions only to find that that secondary analysis was picking up an artefact that wasn't a true positive. But that's a sort of maybe long-winded way of telling you that because the discourse about genetics is, this is clear-cut, the technology is really sensitive, really accurate, 
people don't quite appreciate that possibility. I myself didn't think it was possible the first time I came across it. So I was really surprised to find that a woman who um, had already found a surgeon to remove both her breasts and her ovaries because she thought herself to be at high risk because of a genetic inheritance, it was a false positive result and she had no such finding. Um, And so luckily we were able to confirm that before she had those operations. But that was a real eye-opener to me that that was possible. And we've since heard of several other examples like that. But how do you, you can't, you can't, I understand that it would be easier if, uh, you know, if everybody went through the the NHS, you know, the genomic medicine service and, you know, everything was organised and uh, to the way, but it, life's not like that, is it? And there'll be more tests, not fewer tests. And uh, so how do you, finishing my point in engagement, how do you engage here? How do you actually take a slightly messy situation and, and try and make some sense out of it? Yeah, I think we really need to swing that conversation from the, aren't the developments about technology fantastic? We've got this, you know, this cheap and easy test and we need to sort of build the complexities into that conversation. I think that's hard to do because, you know, newspaper headlines, the amount of times I've had a conversation with a journalist who has completely understood what I'm saying and articulated that very nicely in a piece for that to be lost in a in a headline that completely undermines that. And, and as you know, it's the headlines that um, that people remember. But I think we do need a concerted effort on how we might just make that conversation a bit more nuanced. So we have, have all these tests. How do we help people navigate through that? So uh, you're absolutely right with the, the, you know, the NHS Genomic Medicine Service. But we mustn't forget that that has been set up to diagnose. So there we already have a context. We have that, we, we can personalise the genomic code there because a particular person or a family has got a set of signs and symptoms that they want diagnosing. And you can't simply invert that situation and say, okay, here's a healthy person, let's look at their code and see what's going to happen in the future. It just doesn't, the, the correlation is not as neat as that. And I think that's the message that we really need to get out there. So I think having your BRCA1, that's the you know the Angelina Jolie gene, having that test uh, when you've got that finding in your family, your mother, your auntie, your sister have all had breast cancer and you have the test for it. That's a much more informed contextual test than a baby having that at birth, because we don't know whether that would turn into that sort of family history without that context. And I think that's my worry about plans to have a newborn screening program, that's assuming that you simply bring the diagnosis forward. And I like the appeal of that, but it just doesn't work like that in practice because a genetic code without the clinical context around it is not so interpretable. I'm sort of going to struggle my way through this next question, and you might you might decide it doesn't make much sense, but I've been thinking about this today. And I wonder if things will potentially change when there's more more options for personalized treatment because it, it feels to me like a lot of things at the moment it's personalized diag- it's better diagnosis however we call it but but a lot of the treatments are the treatments and i just wonder if you know when we'll be able to actually go in and you know and edit cells or whatever it is whether that actually changes the whole scenario 
I think, again, I think you're right. That's got a really exciting potential. And there, there are some really, really exciting developments in genetic treatments. So uh, I'm going to give a couple of examples. One, one might be um, in cancer treatments. So if we know the genetic changes in cancer cells, um, then that might allow us to try particular treatments um, for particular changes. And again, that sounds very appealing, and there are some really early success stories there. But the problem there is also that once you've got a cancer, a cell makes lots of genetic mistakes in in the cancer cell. That's part of the definition of of cancer. A cell is is so genetically altered that it's growing out of control. And so it can be really difficult to know which are the changes that are driving the cancer and which are just a result of the cancer. So we need to be much better at knowing which are the really early um, changes where if you influence them, you'd stop the cancer developing or, or even developing in the first place or progressing, and which are the ones that if you targeted them won't make any difference because the cancer is so out of control already. So that's one area in which it's more complicated than we might have thought. There's, there's just so much noise in the system, I think, that makes it really hard to be quite as straightforward as that, as your, your question appealingly sounds. And then the other thing about treatments where we might alter um, the genes in a cell because someone's got, say, an inherited condition or, or we know that targeting that cell by a particular treatment would prevent something from happening. Um, I think, again, there are some really good examples of success stories there, but we also need to think about what the downsides might be of that. So we, once we start manipulating genetic codes, what are the side effects of doing that? And at what stage are we doing it? Are we doing it in a particular tissue or are we wanting to do it in the germline so that, you know, in the sperm or the egg cell to either prevent a child inheriting a condition that's in the family or to prevent something, a child developing something, a particular condition in the future, um, you can immediately see that there's quite a difference between doing it in a in a fully formed adult in a particular tissue and then doing it in the germline without really knowing what the consequences um, for that child will be. So I think you're right, exciting promise, but in those promises, we just need to have a responsible conversation that doesn't oversimplify and that really says, well, for every dial we twiddle on this side, there'll be another dial that we need to uh, compensate for. And, it, and it's, it's sort of more complicated than an on-off switch, really. Which brings me on to kind of my penultimate question, really, which is something you've already touched on, which is ethics. It, it struck me when I was listening to your lecture when you sort of said you formed the, the the group and you sort of said we thought we'd meet for a couple of times and that would be it and you're still going, you know, 60 sessions on. And, you know, so uh, so you, you mentioned one of the areas, ethics, about the in terms of uh, data. Are there other uh, areas of ethical concern? Mm, I think the thing about the reason... I've stayed interested in ethics is that, well, A, it's the most interesting thing about this interface of data development, genetics, clinical practice. I think for me, that those real life ethical issues, how they raise their heads is, is by far the most 
interesting thing. Um, and the other thing is that although you might come to some conclusions about a particular ethical issues, like, uh, for example, disclosure to family members, of, uh, as we were saying earlier about, you know, you find something, find a, a genetic mutation that causes a disease in one person, what should you do about their relatives? You might say, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. But then you still find that the question comes up in so many different ways because families are all different and relationships are all different and diseases are different, that there's still always an interesting question about how do we deal with that the ethics in that particular situation. And I'm less interested in ethics as a as an abstract tool of, you know, what what are the ethics here? How do we respect autonomy? How do we do good? Those sorts of factors are interesting. But I think we need much more attention to the situated resolution of ethical issues and how they arise in clinical practice is forever fascinating to me. And let I think, sadly, less and less attention is paid to that because as a clinician, it's all about, have I done a training course? Have I got medical protection? Have I followed this particular guideline? And that leaves less and less room to say, in this particular situation, what are the ethical issues and how can I help the patient in front of me resolve them? It's been very interesting for us because throughout this series, we've come across this where, you know, where certain technological advances, if you like, have sort of bumped into us real people and uh, the issues that uh, that throws up and, and, and ethics is 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 clearly one of them, and and also the points you raise in terms of sustainability and uh, and affordability and uh, you know access to diversity, to health, yeah. yeah, they're all fascinating. Areas. I guess my last question is is I'm going to be careful about. I'm I'm tempted to ask you to you know do the same as you did uh, 20 years ago and predict the future, and I I suspect you might be reticent to to do that. But I but I wonder where you think that the the next developments here are, are going to lead us. I think that my interest here is inhabiting the space around the developments. So I think they will continue and there'll be really exciting advances in medicine and in treatments and in diagnoses. And my interest is in doing a bit of weed clearing so that that progress can be made. And so I suppose... For me, it's less relevant to say what I think the next advance will be because that's playing into almost the same sort of imaginary that I'm accusing people of of investing too much in. I think we need to be paying more attention to the hurdles that are in the way of of progress and thinking about ways that we might um, circumvent them. And they might be really simple ones. Uh, you know. So I, I think context, highlighting that, a particular genetic finding in one context could mean something completely different to in another context. And just making that you know, a simple conversation about that, because I think many people may not understand that, um, because I think the developments in technology and science have, have almost moved us away from thinking about context. So I would, I'm excited more about inhabiting the space around the developments and getting conversations going that make people realise the subtleties and the and how important a contextual factor is and that we are more complicated than our genetic code. And we want to be more complicated than our genetic code, but that we, we can do fantastic things with data and with 
um, our whole genome readout if we formulate our questions well. But if we say, what's going to happen to this baby in the future with this particular genetic code? I think that's the wrong question. But it's almost keeping, it's almost making sure that we keep people, you know, individual patients, individual people at the centre of, of what we do, isn't it? Rather than get carried away with, you know, with what we can do. It's, it's, uh, it's making sure that people are at the centre of everything. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The interesting thing, I suppose, about personalised medicine is that it's often also alongside some rather depersonalising development. So sort of following guidelines or um, not being able to see patients as often because the NHS is cutting back or the pandemic stops us looking at other things. You know, they're, they're rather depersonalising aspects. You've just made me think that, actually, that, that sort of sit alongside personalised medicine that we could do with paying some attention to. Thank you ever so much indeed for talking to us. We really appreciate it. And thank you for taking us through all the different issues. It'd be absolutely fascinating. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. So we've covered artificial intelligence, quantum technologies, precision medicine. Next on the docket, climate change. Some people still feel as though it's all doom and gloom. I don't view it that way. I think that those of us in leadership positions have the responsibility to look ahead, sort of say, we can do this, here's what's possible, here's how you can contribute, because we don't want this to be, and it isn't a hopeless situation. Dr. Susan Lozier, Dean of the College of Sciences at Georgia Tech, provides some optimism in what often feels like a losing battle against climate change. That's next up for On The Edge. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and follow to be alerted when new episodes are released. Until next time, I'm Stephen Horne.